Welcome to Talking History. I'm Cassie Cooper. I'll be your host on the show. This podcast will cover United States history from the post-Civil War era, during westward expansion, to the modern era. We will talk about the political, social, and economic developments that have helped to shape the United States into what it is today. We will analyze the many achievements and mistakes through a historic lens to better understand the events as they occurred and see how they shape our world today. All right, gang, welcome back. If you remember our last few episodes, we've been tearing through the Roaring Twenties. But those Roaring Twenties, they have to come to a crashing end. That's right. Today, we're going to look at the Great Crash of Wall Street, the Great Depression, and then in a few episodes, we'll head into the New Deal, President Roosevelt's plan to get us out of the throes of economic despair. So by the time we're getting to the end of the 20s, something is terribly wrong with our U.S. economy. Prices have been rising fast throughout the 20s. The wages, they're stagnant. Workers aren't making more money. Consumers are reaching their credit limits and the spending starts to slow. Slow sales means U.S. firms are struggling to make profits. And this, this leads to an artificial prosperity. These are the signs that the 20s bubble was about to burst. We've got these key industries of coal, oil, steel, textiles, housing, and even the auto industry not making profits anymore. We've got farmers struggling to survive. Falling prices throughout the 20s have made it harder for them to repay debts. They start losing their homes. Rural banks begin failing in the late 1920s. Government starts to enact some price supports to set these crop prices high and to help farmers make profits, but it's a case of too little, too late. Consumerism, a product of the 20s, right? This culture of buying things. We, we saw machines being built that were marketed so that you always want the newest things. And we also saw them being built in such ways that they would break so that you had to buy more things, right? The, the culture of consumerism begins to grind to a halt as consumers are running out of disposable income and credit. Despite that, all that debt that they've created, both the consumers, the firms, they don't have the means to pay it off now. They've got unpayable debts. Now, this didn't happen to everyone. There was a complete uneven distribution of income across the country. This prosperity that was everywhere wasn't for everyone. During the 20s, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Kind of a repeat of what we saw during the Gilded Age. Only a very small number of Americans actually prospered during the 20s boom. It was that wealthiest 1% seeing their wealth grow 75%, while most people in America only saw about a 7% increase. Now, why is this important? Well, when you have more than 70% of American families living at the poverty line, most of them not being able to afford basics, right? They couldn't save money for a nest egg. They couldn't. They couldn't buy the new goods without using credit to buy them. And they couldn't pay their bills without using credit to pay their bills. Right? If you're seeing a 7% increase in wealth, 
but you're saying inflation going up 10%, you're actually losing money. In attempts to make more money out of nothing, Americans look for quick riches. And the place they looked was the stock market. It didn't have the regulations that it had today. So as the rich grew richer, they invested in the stock market looking for big bonanzas. They obsessed over the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which shows the market's health with points. During the 20s, the deregulation of the markets and the pro-business policies of Harding and Coolidge had recklessly eased the government regulations on risky practices, regulations that we'd really only gotten from the 19-teens and the era of the progressive presidents. Now we're seeing investors speculating on stocks, trying to buy stocks with the hopes that they can make a quick profit, not based on the merits of the business or the firm, and buying on margin. Just like consumers are buying things like washers and dryers on credit, that's what people were doing on stocks. You put a small amount of money down and then the rest would be paid with credit under the assumption you're gonna be able to turn around and sell this stock for more money than you purchased it for before you owe the main part of that loan. Well, what happens if that loan comes due and that stock hasn't gone up in value? Well, this was the recipe for economic collapse, right? We'll just go down that list. A cookbook for economic collapse. We have a vast income inequality among consumers. We have key industries struggling to make profits. We've got 70% of consumers living at the poverty line without safety net savings. We've got consumer spending grinding to a halt. Farmers unable to pay debt and rural foreclosures beginning. We've got an overuse of credit to meet needs. And we've got risky stock investments. So historians argue over this. When did the Great Depression start? Was it the stock market crash of 1929? Was it the Dust Bowl? Was it the bad investments? And I think you can't pinpoint an exact date because it's all these things combined creating an unhealthy economy. And then the stock market crash being the first symptom that we clearly see. And this isn't bam, it's down, it's done in one day. Stock market crash will begin in October of 1929. During this year, the Dow had risen 300% from its previous decade. But while only 3% of Americans were in stocks, it did make it seem like anyone could get rich. Rumors began to spread in October that big investors were ready to sell their stock. The market confidence stumbled. Investors hardly sold stock to avoid losses, especially those investors that had been buying on margin. By October 24, 1929, we got panic investors dumping stocks in mass numbers. That led to the stock prices sinking. Wealthy bankers who had bought bad stocks tried to stabilize the market. And the Dow did stabilize going into the weekend, but billions had already been lost. And after the weekend, on October 29, 1929, forever to be etched in the annals of history as Black Tuesday, the traders returned to the exchange on Monday and the bottom fell out of the market. The next day was the worst day of the crash the biggest drop in stocks. It's not the lowest the stock market would fall. That wouldn't come until a few years later. But the panic overtook investors and they dumped 6.4 million shares and prices sank even further. Small investors were left with huge debt. Firms lost money. Many people lost all their savings. 
We literally had people leaping from windows, people that had lost you know, fortunes and empires that they had held on to the day before. By November of 1929, the market had lost 30 billion and US output was cut in half. And that wasn't the end. It was followed by bank failures. And then in the background, there was always the economic slash environmental disaster of the Dust Bowl. The banks didn't, Americans didn't have their money in stocks. Remember, just 3% owned stocks. But they did have their money in banks. And the banks had their money in stocks. The uncertainty of the crash led to a panic of withdrawing of savings from banks. This banking panic of 1929 had millions of people rushing to the banks to withdraw all their savings at once. You know, it's rumored that this started in Brooklyn, New York, where a butcher went to go get his money from the bank and they told him he couldn't take it all out. And he told his neighbor and that neighbor told their neighbor and it spread around until it went like wildfire across the country. And everyone, small towns, big cities, rushed to banks to try to get their money out while they were still solvent. This drained funds and banks began to fail because they couldn't cover the withdrawals. By December of 1929, millions of Americans had lost their savings and over 600 banks had failed. Banks that had invested in stocks lost money, big money, evaporating private savings in the United States. Unlike today, the government didn't insure bank deposits. So money that was lost was lost forever. We'll pause there, take a quick break, and then when we get back to it, we're going to talk about the growing Great Depression. Depression grips America. Dun, 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 dun. Yes, the Wall Street crash was just the beginning. The beginning of the end? We're going to see a period that won't end until we enter into World War II, a period from 1929 to 1940, where our economy plummets, unemployment soars, and it's caused by four main factors. We're going to see tariffs and war debts, which cut down on the sale of U.S. exports. We're going to see the farming crisis, where we have low prices for their goods, high debt, and foreclosures on the farms. In addition, we'll have that environmental crisis going on in the Midwest, the Dust Bowl. We're gonna see the availability of easy credit, allowing people to spend beyond their means to repay, and an unequal distribution of income. Huge profits were made during the 1920s, but those only went into the hands of the very few. And this wasn't something that just happened in the United States. We're talking about a worldwide collapse, global effects of the Great Depression. In 1930, you have an economy of the world that has been broken, and almost every nation is hit hard. European nations in particular were still recovering from World War I. Their economy had never truly been kick-started again. U.S. buyers couldn't afford European imports, especially with the tariffs we placed on them. And European economies crumbled with no one to purchase their goods. They also couldn't buy our goods. So we get into a cycle where no one can help the other. 
Nations who owed war debt, and by those nations, I particularly mean Germany with its reparations, but also nations like Britain and France, who we had loaned money to. They had no means to pay them off. Ourselves, the United States was owned, owed huge amounts of money, and nobody could pay us back. Our currency value plummeted. Currency values across Europe and around the world plummeted. And again, just like in the US, worldwide, we're seeing prices rising and unemployment soaring. Back across the pond here, in 1932, high costs and low revenue have driven over 90,000 businesses into bankruptcy. Workers' wages, hours, all the advances they had made were cut. And consumerism, the great driver of our economy, has slowed to a trickle. The highest prices were being paid for the basics, the needed things, the milk, the eggs, the toilet paper. Right? It's very similar to the kind of things that we're seeing now in this, in this pandemic uh, inflated economy of the United States and the world. As the U.S. industry collapsed, our unemployment rate jumped to over 25%. No way to work. People face starvation and homelessness. By 1933, we've lost half of the country's banks. Too big to fail? Nope. They all failed. Millions lost all they had and others had no way to protect what they had left. What was the impact on urban life? Cities themselves were hurt the hardest. Economy collapses, which means those factory jobs that had drawn all the immigrants and all the people from rural America to the countryside were no longer to be had. Sorry, cat was destroying our furniture. So in cities, you're finding evictions, homelessness, hunger, people living in parks and sewers, people digging through the trash, begging for food to eat just to survive. People started to live in what were known as shanty towns, makeshift homes, things that you can see yet again today in America, underneath the overpasses in cities like New Orleans and San Francisco. Families lived in these little towns made of makeshift shacks of scrap metal, scrap materials, anything they could find. The hungry and unemployed resorted to selling whatever they could. Some produce, others their clothes, their cars, anything to survive. There's a really famous picture of a very well-dressed, dapper young man with a bowling hat on, standing in front of one of the most beautiful cars I've ever seen with a sign. $100 will buy this car, must have cash, lost all on the stock market. The government's role was not to supply direct relief at this point. At least that's not the way the government thought of itself, not the way the Americans yet thought of the government, right? As opposed to what we've seen during um, our current crisis. At the outset of the Great Depression, there was no system for direct relief, no cash payments or food to be provided by the, to the poor by the government, no safety net. Some municipalities, some cities or towns would offer some meager relief, but it was never enough. For the most part, people had to rely on private charities. Groups like the whole houses that we've talked about, uh, religious organizations. People lined up for this charity 
in what were known as bread lines, waiting for food, in front of soup kitchens, which offered free or extremely low-cost food. However, even though visibly what we see is the urban issues of the Great Depression, the rural areas of the country, the countryside, were hit just as hard. The advantage being that farmers could grow their own food to survive. But what happens when Ma and Pa get kicked off the farm because the bank has taken the land? Well, and that's what starts happening because the country was in the middle of one of the worst droughts it had ever seen. And over 400,000 farms had already been foreclosed on by 1932. As we look west from the East Coast, we get to the Great Plains, plains that had been the domain for millions of buffalo, for the migratory patterns of some of the different native peoples that lived there. Well, that changed with Western expansion. Those plains became the great farming belt of America, and they had been left dry by heat and drought and over farming during World War I. Farmers had removed the prairie grass that protected the dry topsoil through overuse. Windstorms picked up this dry topsoil and carried it as far as the Atlantic Ocean. Your land literally blew away. With land unsuitable to farm and nothing left, farmers migrated west, as detailed by John Steinbeck in The Grapes of Wrath. These people became known as Okies, coming from areas like Oklahoma and heading to California. Hundreds of thousands looking for work as far hands, as farm hands, or any other way of scraping by a living. Families felt the strain. Once a source of unity, the Great Depression began to tear families apart. Men, unable to cope with failure, in many cases ran away. Over a hundred thousand hobos rode the railroads, living under bridges wandering the country. Women, now without their husbands, with no income, were forced to eat canned foods, make their own clothing, trying to budget what meager income they could find. And children faced malnutrition, cuts to their schools, disease ran rampant. And the teenage wild boys, as they became known, roamed the country like their old men, looking for work, adventure, and escape. It's amazing to see pictures of the railroads during this time. It's the same pictures you can see today of migrants riding railroads across Mexico trying to make their way to the United States. But in this case, this is American citizens riding trains across our country trying to find work. And the Great Depression is not going to end easily. In fact, the strain that Americans are seeing will decide who the president is to run this country. 1932, the election is going to come down to who Americans trust to take them out of this time of great despair. And we'll get to that next time. So have a great week, and we'll be posting some great information about FDR next week. Also, check out the website. Have a great day. We'll see you next time on Talking History of Big Coop. Remember to subscribe and tell your friends.